Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast. My name is Joe Hicks. And I'm Evan Kelly. And here we are, two dudes. We're going to talk. But Evan, what manner are we going to talk in? Well, we're going to hopefully talk in a manner that introduces good faith discussion to a number of topics. And we're going to do our best to evaluate issues fairly. And we hope you will, too. Yeah, and we're 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 two guys. We we like to think we know things, but we know we're not perfect. So we're just here to talk about things, and yeah, yeah. That's that. It's it, it seems simple, but we're simple guys. Just want to have a conversation. We invite you into our studio that does not exist and is remote. Yeah, our studio that is located halfway between our locations. Yes, so it's a nice drive for each of us. Yeah, yeah, good commute. So anyway, Evan, what do you want to talk about this week? Well, Joe, this week I want to talk about multipotentiality. You're going to have to fill me in on this. What's that? All right, great. It's Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot simpler than you probably think. Multipotentiality is a concept introduced to me by a TED Talk given by speaker Emily Wapnick. And Wapnick describes people who she terms multipotentialites. Those are terms that we'll use more or less interchangeably. Multipotentiality describing the concept and multipotentialite describing a person who embodies the concept. And a multipotentialite is someone who doesn't have one true calling or one special thing that they like to do above all else. They often take rapt interest in a subject and study it exhaustively for a time, but then drift to a different topic or field. Essentially, multipotentialites are people who can't answer the question, what do you want to be when you grow up, even as adults? And when I heard about multipotentiality and multipotentialites, it struck such a chord with me. Like, it seriously felt as if divine intervention had led me to listen to this TED Talk. As you know, and as some other listeners may know, I'm sort of into everything. Mm -hmm. From an education perspective, I've got degrees in library science and communication, but I've taken almost everything dating back to high school. Calculus, biology, physics, English, film, sociology, political science, creative writing, cultural studies, archival studies, metadata, preservation, theater, speech and debate. I, I could go on. I've, I've taken a lot of different coursework in a lot of different fields and studied a lot of things at a non-negligible level in ways that haven't really translated into necessarily even obtaining a degree or a job. And part of me, I guess, always felt like this was bad. But now Wapnick tells me that this is not a weakness, it's a strength. And she goes on to list three specific strengths of multipotentialites that I think are, are pretty interesting to discuss. So the first is idea synthesis. Wapnick says that multipotentialites are naturally adept at combining two or more of their interests and then innovating within the overlap. So you can sort of take knowledge that you have in one field and use it to solve problems in another. Yeah, that makes sense. Like 
someone who only ever does one thing, you know, in one field, they can only look through it that with that lens. So exactly. Yeah. It's tough to see the forest through the trees. Sometimes you can get a different perspective in a different set of tools to solve a problem when you come at it from multiple perspectives. Yeah. So the, the second strength of multipotentialites is rapid learning. Since we multipotentialites so often pick up new subjects, Wapnick notes that we are used to being beginners, and our multipotentiality helps us become better learners. So I have started from the bottom in so many fields, knowing absolutely nothing, and I like to think that I have a little bit of skill at, at more or less quickly ascertaining what I need to know and building a knowledge base from the ground up. Yeah, it definitely helps to, you know, we, you, you definitely have to learn to learn. Like, learning to learn is a learning process. And that may sound jumbled or, you know, common sense. But if you if you have to learn things a lot, then you get adept at learning things. Yeah, and, and I don't think that your characterization was jumbled or common sense. I think that that actually is is an important statement to make that's not self-evident. When we think of learning a subject, we think, oh, you just absorb the information. But the process by which you absorb information is also learned and can be done more efficiently or less efficiently. Like you, you can do – you can kind of learn things passively, but – I, I one thing that I've learned in adulthood is how to um, actively learn things, how to mm -hmm. use an active mind to learn things instead of one's just getting, you know, whatever, you know, happens to come along. You know, you sit in a class, you know, this happens a lot in, uh, you know, in the school system where, you know, there's a lot of kids who, you know, and it seemed like I was one of them where if I just showed up to class and just kind of listened, I could get enough of the information but i didn't get to the fullest extent of information so mm -hmm. if i if i really wanted to get to the fullest extent or to really learn something i have to be active i have to think about it you know you have to you, you know you're not just reading a book you have to really absorb what the words mean mm-hmm and I think even – I definitely don't disagree with anything you've said. The the active learning is very important. But even within active learning, there's a sort of self-knowledge that you have to possess about how you learn best. Um, you know, some people can just want to take copious amounts of notes. Some people are auditory learners. Um and, and it takes some getting used to to figure out within yourself what strategies work best for you to learn and retain information. And as Wapnick would argue, that's something that multipotentialites are naturally skilled at from having all of these interests and hobbies. Yeah, that's kind of why, you know, learning how you learn is how some people you every once in a while hear the story of someone who like dropped out of high school, but then later in life became a college professor. Yeah. And that's because when you, when you go through school, you you get whatever they're serving as far as learning goes. And some, that doesn't work for everybody. So 
some people have to go through a lot of time to figure out how they learn. And then once they learn that, then they, you know, the potential is endless. Yeah, they can really take off. And so the final strength, uh, specific strength of multipotentialites is adaptability. This is pretty straightforward. When you have a large knowledge base and a lot of skills, you can tailor them in different situations more easily than a specialist. And it's important to note that there's nothing wrong with being a specialist. Like, we need people who know a very limited but deep amount about neurosurgery, right? Like, there are some things where we absolutely don't want people to be drawing a whole bunch of esoteric stuff. Some Sometimes you have to have very specific and directed knowledge. Mm-hmm. But... One of the strengths that comes with multipotentiality is to have that broad range of knowledges and skills so that you can adapt to different situations. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like the the first part where you, you can see things in a different frame. You know, once something, once the frame of reference changes a little bit, you can you can still adapt to it because that you you know more than just whatever the original frame was. Yeah, yeah, you're not as thrown off by changes in circumstance when you are accustomed to operating within various circumstances. Mhm. So it it also sounds to me that you know, multipotentiality is also the concept of being a Renaissance man. Yes. And actually in the Ted talk, Wapnick uses those exact words, Renaissance man to describe multipotentialites. It's um, the idea that at the time of the enlightenment, it was considered a mark of good scholarship to be well-versed in a number of topics. Yeah. You know, I, I, I hate to even bring it up, but there's like, because I don't know the specifics of it, maybe you know, Evan, but there, I once heard that there was like some guy who was an ancient Greek and he was the best in no subjects, but he was like the second best in all subjects. <laughs> and he was like the ultimate multi-potentialite. Just, you know, I'm not the guy who has the book on mathematics, but I was the second lead guy in mathematics at the time. (laughs) You know, I I don't know the specific name, but um, it sounds like it's describing exactly what we're talking about right here. Many, many years later. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Let me see. Who are some like notable figures who are multi potentialites? renaissance men yeah an interesting interesting thought experiment well um you know uh ken jong was a medical doctor and practiced medicine for years and then eventually decided to prefer to to uh pursue his love of acting and of comedy and now he is an esteemed actor and comedian. So I would say Ken Jong is is sort of the easiest and most accessible thing for me to think of when I think of uh, a famous multi-potentialite. Yeah, Ken Jong of his most famous role in The Hangover. Oh, uh, don't do community like that. 
Probably, I mean, probably the thing most people would recognize him from. Yeah, community needs to have a bigger audience. That's not really the point of this, but I, it's it's true nonetheless. Yeah. So yeah, he's uh he is a Renaissance man. Um, I also like to think of those those people who are you know in the potential or whatever running to get egots, you know, Emmy, Grammy. Oscar Tonys. I mean, it, it, you know, in some way, all those mediums are similar, but it's still, they're all different. And yeah, it it's, ta- all, it's all performance. I guess that's kind of how I struggle with it is that it's, it's all performance, but maybe, yeah, I, I guess it's, it's tough to argue that being able to sing a song is the same type of talent and potential as being able to elicit emotion on a stage. So, yeah. But then they yeah. cheat and they get they get these Grammys for spoken word albums. That's that's bullshit. That's not multi potentiality. That's <laughs> that's a shortcut. That should not be allowed. That's that's cheating in the yeah. race. Like, they found a shortcut. Like people who count daytime Emmys toward their egots. What are they even doing? <laughs> oh man, they show them during the day. I know. What, like, what's what's the competition? Oh my gosh, it's the Ellen Show or it's the knockoff Ellen Show. You know, like. <laughs> and before Ellen Show, it was the Oprah Show. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's there's a finite number of these things, and then every year, because the categories are so numerous, you know, fifteen of them get to be Emmy winners. There, there's a lot of television. There is. We're peak peak TV. So much content, and we're making more of it. Yeah, we're we're doing the world a favor right now. We decided the world needed to hear our takes. Yeah, I'm going to paraphrase here, but it reminds me of my one of my favorite Simpsons jokes from the episode "The Twisted World of Marge Simpson," where she tries to open a startup making pretzels, and um, she goes, she doesn't do well. And it breaks Homer's heart, and he he says something to the effect of, is Marge so wrong for wanting to shove one more salted snack into America's bloated gut? (laughs) (laughs) There's not enough out there. We all have to achieve the dream. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and and, uh, listening to Wapnick, it sounds like a real strength, and it really does excite me. But it's also concerning to me that it seems like the job market is moving in the exact opposite direction. And more and more, hiring is standardized and automated to the point where if you don't have the exact line item on your resume that they're looking for, it'll just get discarded by an algorithm and the full scope of your multi-potentiality won't be considered. And I think one of the most important implications of this way of thinking is that it leads to credential inflation. People are just trying to get more degrees, more certifications, more resume line items instead of doing stuff that's more meaningful. And so I want to sort of conclude our discussion of this on on some questions for you, Joe. What do questions. we do? Yeah, Joe, what do we do? How, how do... I make use and people like me make use of this natural inclination to multi-potentiality and how do businesses harness this potential that 
is being overlooked in the status quo. I mean, I think traditionally the way that um, kind of potential was utilized was is that the 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 big boss man who kind of gets to do whatever he wants befriends you, and then you're you're like the 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 go to guy to talk about things, you know, about what to do or whatever. But if you don't have that, if you don't have that in, then it, it's hard. Yeah, regardless it, of the end, what if you can't even get in the door? Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, getting in the door. Yeah, you got to have the right key. Yeah, so something I think about is a more holistic attitude toward candidate selection. And the obvious downside is that this is just going to be an absolute bitch for whatever hiring manager or HR person has to do it. But looking less at highly specified technical qualifications and trying to get a fuller sense of a person who you're considering Mm -hmm. and examining achievement and ability to work within a number of fields with different constraints to the point where we start to value that more to allow multi-potentialites and others who aren't reflected well in the current process. Uh, You know, I've never been in that position. I don't know how realistically feasible it is, but maybe, you know, when, when we speak of utopian thinking, maybe that's part of my utopia. Yeah. A chicken in every pot. Yeah, a chicken <laughs> in one of seven pots that I had to divide my chicken between because I couldn't choose. You have a, you have seven pots. It, it feels like that sometimes. It sure does. Well, those are your thoughts on they multi-potentiality. Sure so, Joe. Hey, Evan. What do you want to talk about? I don't have as much of a speech, but, you know, maybe it's something to start a dialogue. I I am perplexed at the idea of reviews and not so much, you know, like Amazon reviews or reviews for restaurants, but reviews for movies and art in general. And, you know, this comes up uh, recently on album came out that i was excited for um it was the charlie album by charlie xcx good album by the way i really liked and it was reviewed favorably by one of my favorite reviewers anthony fantano he gave it a nine out of ten which you know on his scale is very good and then you know in some way it made me feel validated But then also today I went and saw the movie Joker. And at some point, there are some people out there who are upset that whatever the Rotten Tomatoes score isn't what they want it to be. Or they're upset that reviewers are reviewing it badly because they really enjoyed the movie. And they feel in a place where they feel alienated because they really like something, but they feel the the reviewers aren't you know they aren't validating their you know what they like so you know it it just seems like 
in this world of reviews of media, there's this kind of two-way street where the reviewers, they are out there just kind of giving their opinions. I mean, some may think, you know, they're, they got a more objective take and, you know, there are some ways you can have objective ism in, in reviewing art, but then there's also the part of it that it is also opinion and they're just putting it out there. But then the review, you know, the person who reads the reviews or looks at the reviews kind of looks at it for validation of whatever they're thinking, or, you know, it can at times curb their thinking on whatever piece of media, you know, that, you know, it seems like, you know, people do a lot to conform to societal's no society's norms. And there's this kind of, you know, looking back and forth, like, okay, I like this thing. Does everybody else like this thing? And some people are secure enough in their own opinions that they're fine with um, liking something, even if everybody else doesn't. But there, there is definitely a large number of people out there where they like something and they also need to know that other people like it in order to help enhance their liking of what they like. So, Evan, you've done reviewing before. You had your blog and you've reviewed music or movies and you like to, you know, you're opinionated and you're confident in your opinions. What do you think of this? Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack here and uh, it's a lot of very interesting things uh, being discussed. And uh, for those who don't know, I have been an independent film critic for six years written a number of reviews that have been published online and many more in my head that don't see the light of day. Um, and the first thing that I'm going to have to address here is the problem with aggregators. So people who look to a Rotten Tomatoes score or a Metacritic score for validation are often misguided. Yes. Aggregators inherently have to limit the scope of the input. So just because Joker, last I checked, had a 68% score on Rotten Tomatoes, doesn't mean 68% of people liked it. doesn't even mean 68% of critics liked it. It means... 60% of the more or less random sample of people who are on the tomato meter, and there are qualifications that hopefully make it at least a solid sample in terms of average quality. But all that yeah, means is random that, tweets aren't on there. Yeah. But all that means is 68% happened to cash in favorable or favorably. And what what uh, what makes more sense if you're a fan who's genuinely trying to assess a piece of media for your own consumption just to find out if you would like it is to do what it seems like you do, Joe. Find someone you trust, in your case, Anthony Fontano, and 
listen to what they say. If you have a value consensus with them, if you, you share the same aesthetic preferences, that's a more accurate indicator of what you're probably going to like or dislike than an aggregator. Mm-hmm. The second thing, and this this is where I maybe get a little bit frustrated and get a little bit uppity as someone who is, has tried to write reviews, is that I think it's less about subjectivity versus objectivity and more about positioning. So if you're a fan of an album or a film, you have an absolutely unique and largely irreplicable position consuming that piece of media. And what you like may not adhere to the aesthetic values found in a Thompson and Boardwell film textbook. And that's fine. Mm -hmm. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. But when fans or other casual readers get, get mad, they get pissed off that reviewers aren't reviewing their films highly enough or that, oh, we don't like every single superhero movie that comes out. They, they, they're also guilty of that same lack of understanding. People who are critics are often coming at it from a very homogenized perspective. And the common theme among most critics is that they are people who watch every movie or watch mm-hmm. a large subset of the movies. And that naturally changes how you respond to a new film or a new piece of media or a new album. If you are coming at the criticism from a perspective of expertise, you're going to respond differently. For example, my brother is a huge horror fan and he likes when he's watching a movie, he's, he's not trying to appeal to a broader cinematic ideal he likes the horror tropes or he likes when they're subverted and he enjoys different he enjoys aspects of the film that don't mean as much to me and neither of us Mm -hmm. is wrong that's just the nature of media consumption like to step in you know there there is definitely um looking at something as just an art form and looking at something through a fandom. Yes. So like, you know, I'm, you know, there are like racing movies out there that have to do, you know, that use stories from racing sport, motorsport, and they, you know, they turn those into movies and, you know, some of them reach broad appeal. Some of them are reviewed highly, but for you know a reviewer, that's just it's it's another movie. Mm-hmm. But for the motorsporting fandom out there, this is you know they have a level of liking that, or they're going to like it more just because it's about what they like. Yeah, and or they're going to have a different perspective at looking at it. You know, they're going to look. You know, did oh did they tell the story right? Did they capture the feeling that we had when we experienced this in real life? Yeah. And then the reviewer is assessing it against um, a children's movie or on the same scale, 
that a, a comedy is you know graded against or or some other movie that's completely unrelated to the racing movie yeah i think that's a really good point about how if you already have a connection with the subject matter you have wildly different expectations i mean look at look at a film like the shining i have never read the book at the time that i'd seen the film i'd never read any stephen king i've since read some stephen king but i love it i think it's a fantastic horror movie that stands on its own merits but it is wildly different from Stephen King's vision in the novel. And so I know people who read the novel first when it came out and cannot stand the film, even though based on the qualities of cinema that I look for, it's a rousing success and one of my favorite films. But if you were expecting fidelity to king's original work there's no chance that you're going to enjoy that film and expectation i think is an overlooked part of this whole equation and people who fancy themselves more uh, more into the world of cinema aren't immune from this either this summer The movie Yesterday came out, and for those who don't know, it's a sort of high-concept movie where a man played by the actor Himesh Patel gets knocked out during a power outage, and when he wakes up and all the lights are turned back on, nobody else in the world can remember the music of the Beatles. He's the only one, so he gets to play the songs and claim them as his own and ride that uh, new creativity. Well, they think it's creativity. Really, it's just rote copying to worldwide fame and fortune. And the whole crux of this movie is he plays a Beatles song that no one knows, and everybody drops their jaw and says how great that Beatles song is. And they just do that like 17 times in this hour and a half movie, just You know, he sings yesterday and they're like, that's the greatest song ever. And then he sings, hey, Jude. And they're like, that's the greatest song ever. It keeps going and going. And I understand that there were issues with this film. I understand that the sci-fi concept of the mechanism that allowed this mass amnesia was underexplored. I'm aware that the romantic plot line with Willie James wasn't always as smooth as it could be. But you know what? I love the Beatles. I had a fantastic time watching that movie and listening to that music. And I gave it a favorable review. I loved it. And the, the, the fan in me came out very strong for that movie. Yeah. And there was no way you could have, watch that movie removed from that either not not honestly not with any intellectual honesty you know we can detach ourselves and 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 understand well you know this isn't working but in my heart of hearts just listening to i want to hold your hand has a more overwhelmingly positive emotional response than any creeping negative response from an intellectualization of the film. Definitely. And there's so oh, go ahead. Oh no, you go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to riff. 
Oh, well, there's just there's one other point that I think is really important to make is that when anyone this doesn't have you don't have to have strong film opinions. You don't have to have ever taken a formal film class, but anyone who watches a movie when they talk about that movie, it's inherently tied to what they value in a movie. Do you value originality? Do you value humor? Do you value strong acting? Do you value insights into the human condition or our society? Yes. And your your values that you have when watching a movie are inherently tied to your values for life. And so I think it's difficult to have sort of these debates about whether a movie is good or bad without having a consensus on a general philosophical outlook. And yet no film debates get that deep. No one Mm -hmm. is saying, well, I think the Joker is bad because I also uh, reject a nihilistic worldview. And, you know, it's or if they do happen, I don't want to say they never happen, but it's rare, especially just among fans and average film goers discussing the film in the lobby waiting to get their popcorn refilled before they go home. Right. Yeah, the, those conversations are, oh, that was good. <laughs> yeah. Or, I don't know. Or that was bad. So Yeah, or, or at best you can kind of get people who like describe plot elements like oh the new star wars i didn't like how they made everything a joke oh why was uh why was laura dern there but that doesn't really get to the core of why those things were displeasing or why those things were pleasing i like the new star wars you can describe what you didn't like but it's hard to describe why you didn't like exactly or 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 did like exactly Um, so it, it reviews have always just been something that's kind of an interesting subject to me. And it, it's interesting to just think about. And, and it's also, I somewhat get tired because dear Lord, thanks to the internet, there are so many reviews yeah. of everything, oh, of yeah. every movie. There are so of many trailer of every trailer. There are reviews. Yeah. They have the golden trailer awards now or, or something to that effect. They give out competitive awards for just having a good two minute greatest hits compilation of your movie. It's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. And there are a, a million things to have opinions on. And now there's a, an even more diverse set of people out there talking about them yeah and it's good to get more more voices at the table especially when historical underrepresentation is an issue Uh, i mean even today there's just you know not even forget representation there is just so much more opinion out there than ever before like the people are getting exposed to opinions for things that they never would have before like, you know, it used to be that you would get your newspaper and maybe you could read the opinion section or there would be a film critic. 
but that would just be the one thing you hear besides the hearsay that you hear from other people in your immediate social circle. Yeah, or if you really took initiative, you could read uh, books and longer pieces on the subject. But that's well, taking initiative. Yeah, yeah. that's now that's Nowadays, that. it's like I can go on Twitter and see opinions. I can... Yeah just be searching youtube and it's you know shows me it's like why why uh batman the dark knight was such and such and i'm like well i like batman the dark knight let me let me watch such and such i want to hear this take you know i don't know if this is the video you're referencing but i know that there is a wisecrack video in their what went wrong series on the dark knight rises and I enjoy watching wisecrack videos sometimes, but I get into this beef with them when they are okay calling a movie a failure if it doesn't adhere to a specific philosophical line of reasoning that's established within the philosophical community. But again, that's what they do. They approach film through the lens of philosophy. So they're not considering the other avenues through which a film could be deemed a success. Yeah. Yeah. So a a movie could fail because it does not adhere to Hume's ideas on the human condition, which it appears, you know, the movie may or may not have set out to do, but it could still be a good movie. Otherwise there's, so many ways that you can look at all of these things and it can get overwhelming um especially if you're not looking for you know you're not specifically looking for those other perspectives mm-hmm. like you know depending on what someone's perspective is you know how they approach something or how they they go you know review things it can it can be off-putting, and it goes back to how it. A lot of reviews seem to be uh, used as validation for a large number of people. Yeah, the movie. I you know the movie I liked, everybody else thought was good. So I inherently I have good taste or whatever it says about us. I mean, we're not thinking about it in strictly those terms, but we like to like things that other people like. Yeah, that's sort of the psychological underpinning, right? And I feel like it's often discussed with with a negative connotation. Not I, I don't think you're guilty of this, but in, in general when you hear this discussed in a culture it's often to the effect of, well, people are just, you know, hive mind pod people need to wake up and think for themselves. But comparison is part of our base humanity. It helps us understand what is possible to compare ourselves and by extension, our opinions to others. And so I don't think that it's I don't think that it's bad to seek validation in reviews. I just think that you'll be more satisfied with a fuller contextual understanding of where reviews come from and what they're trying to accomplish. I mean, nobody 
there's nobody out there who doesn't seek validation in their opinions. Mm -hmm. And it could even cut the other way where they can feel people can feel validated in their opinions because other people don't validate it. Yeah. Yeah. Like a, a reaction. Reactance I, I, yeah. My, my, yeah, my, I, I am validated when I have an opinion that other people think is just wrong. Oh like boy. When, everybody, when the deep state gets mad, I know I'm onto something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Once they start investigating Giuliani's money, that's when we know he's the Patriot. <laughs> so yeah, the, the, that's my thoughts on reviews. Do you have anything else to add on that? No, no. I, I, I enjoyed the discussion. I hope it was and I, adequately. And I was, on, yeah, adequately informed. You know, and I was also surprised. I tried to do some research, like if there's meta conversation out there on reviews, but it's kind of hard thing to look up. <laughs> well, maybe we're we're setting the trend again. Maybe this is what's going to blow up this week. This week, the reviewers revolt. <laughs> well, now we're here at our main subject. Evan, what are we going to talk about today? So today we're going to talk about... The movement known as Ban the Box. It's also sometimes referred to as the Fair Chance Amendment. And Ban the Box, its premise is to pressure different municipalities and eventually the nation to outlaw the box on job applications that you check or are asked about criminal history. It's an effort to end job discrimination based on prior criminal status. So yeah, th this is definitely important because a lot of people coming out from prison, they have a real hard time finding a job because of being discriminated against because they were criminals. <laughs> And employment is very important. If you aren't employed, you are very likely to go out and do some crimes again. Exactly. The, the cycle goes like this. When you have a criminal record, it hurts your ability to be employed. When you are less able to get employed, it hurts your economic prospects when your access to legitimate economic opportunity is deprived, you are more likely to commit crime. And this is something that, well, it's a part of the puzzle for a concept called recidivism. People committing crimes, getting out, and then committing more crimes and ending up back in the system. Yeah, and, you know, it, it seems like we're recidivism is such a big should be a real big deal because we it seems like at least in the united states that we just kind of want to lock people up in jail and punish them and then don't really care about trying to help mold them into better people who are better able to fit into society. Well, there's 
So there's the two competing schools of thought, right? Is prison rehabilitation or is it a deterrent? In practicality, it's both, but there's debate as to what the primary function should be. I mean, I'll I'll just say people's ideas of deterrent are way overstated. Yes, I would agree with that. Mostly because oftentimes the people who are having these discussions aren't the, you know, in the life circumstances where they're likely to, you know, commit the same types of crimes that would lead them into jail and lead them to have, you know, up close ideas of whether they should just be punished or they should be re- rehabilitated. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of a philosophical argument yes. for a lot of people. And, you know, if if somebody's already been in jail, I just really think we should do something to help make it seem like, you know, make it so that they don't go in jail again. And one way that can lower recidivism is by helping make sure X cons get jobs yeah and this has it, been it, this has been the, the rationale for places that have implemented ban the box measures hawaii became the first state to do so in 1998 and now i think it's around 11 states who have banned the box on on job applications um for federal jobs not for all jobs nationally in the private sector but for federal jobs President Obama actually banned the box in 2015. Companies such as Walmart and Target have voluntarily banned the box in the wake of that decision for fear that public outcry will eventually force them to do it anyway, so they're trying to get ahead of it. And then mm-hmm. different cities around the countries have citywide ordinances banning the bar, the banning the box. Some notable examples include San Francisco, New York City, Austin, Texas, and most recently, Waterloo, Iowa, which is what prompted this to be selected as the topic, was Waterloo's decision to ban the box. It was something that Bernie Sanders spoke out in favor of and commended the city of Waterloo for doing. Yeah, and and this is also, as a caveat, this isn't asking employers to never know whether their employees were criminals or not like all ban the box does is make it so that the absolute first thing that they learn about these applicants is not whether they were a criminal or not that's correct one of the the ban the box covers a number of dimensions including when along in the hiring process you can ask about criminal history. But there's always this understanding that before a hiring decision is made, you will get to know. Yes. It would be very unreasonable for an employer not to know, you know, an essential part of someone's past. So then here's... But... Oh, go ahead. But this, this, uh, this measure is really just to make sure that it isn't the first thing that they know, or to make it so that it's an easel, easily, um, sortable, uh, variable that they can just kind of put everything into one pile otherwise. 
So here's my first critique of the ban the box movement. How effective do you think it is, really, if your criminal history will eventually become known? What, what does it matter? Are you just banking on the fact that they'll get to like you before they know that you have a record and then they won't take that into consideration? What, what do you think? Uh, yeah, that, that was one thing when I did a little bit of research before this topic that got me thinking, you know, it, I, I guess it's preventing people from having to essentially, you know, through the job application process, essentially have to go up, walk up to someone, shake their hand and say, hello, I'm a criminal. And make that the first thing that they know about. But I, I would, I would really like to see some research on whether, you know, this leads to a rise in convicts, you know, former convicts who have served their time getting employment or not, because, you know, employers will still find out. Um, And, you know, I definitely could see that this is something that could make, make these people who are applying for jobs feel better about their prospects they, they, I, I have the feeling that they want to feel that they have been considered as a whole person before coming up with um, that they had committed a crime in their past. They, they don't want, they, they want to be judged on the first plane like everybody else was. But then again, it, 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 it I wonder how far it would actually, you know, how much it actually helps. So, there is there, there's not enough research on the subject the the statistical backing for ban the box either way is inchoate at best but the brookings institution has done some preliminary research and what they have found is that in municipalities with ban the box laws there isn't an appreciable increase in hiring rates for people with criminal records. In fact, they found that hiring rates for minority men with criminal records actually goes down in municipalities that have banned the box legislation. Again, we probably don't have a strong enough body of data to draw broad conclusions, but from everything I can find, the, the initial returns are not promising. Yeah. Um, and it, it, one thing that got me thinking in, in this subject was it, it, uh, something that I, I see sometimes where, it, it, at least in the United States, it seems like um, in an area where there's a ne- neglect in one area leads to something else bad help happening in somewhere else. Like, so... I I have grown up and I feel like I've grown up in an environment where people don't really believe that if you've gone to jail, that once you've served your time, you are an upright citizen. Like you have absolved yourself of what you've done. There is still a real skepticism that you are a 
um, you are still a criminal at heart or you, you know, will still exhibit the same behaviors. And in some sense, because we treat prison as punitive and we have really high recidivism rates, it, it's somewhat true. And, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. So it, it, it's, you know, with a lot of people, you know, it, it, in some ways, recidivism can be as high as 50%. It, it, it's reasonable for an employer to want to know, you know, hey, am I, you know, I'm getting into this. And there's like a 50% chance that this person that I hire may end up in legal trouble again. Like uh, that's a, that's a big investment in someone who down the road may slip up again, just statistically. We don't, we don't seem to have a strong enough um, concept that someone who has been to jail can come out and be, more than someone who went to jail. Yeah. And I think up to this point, and the broader discourse refers to crime and criminal history very monolithically, but if, if I were an employer, I think it would make a big difference to me the nature of the crime. Like if someone was put away for yes. marijuana possession, I don't care. But if someone is a violent criminal, if someone has gone away for assault or rape, that would give me more pause. Yes. Um, and it, it really makes me wonder how much nuance there is in that. I mean, part of it, part of it seems to be ban the box is to try and add nuance in at least, you know, at least a hair more. That's, that's a good point. Then, just are you a are are you a ha, have you committed a felony? Like, is is your knowledge on what happened any more than that? You know, a felony is is something that not a lot of people commit, and it's a it's a big deal. And you want to know, you know, was was it something that is going to make it? suspect that you can fully do this job well yeah or can i trust that you've been able to come back from that because on one hand i do firmly believe that past behavior is the strongest predictor of future behavior but at the same time discussions about sort of the I guess I'll just say moral implications of recidivism, I think, come down to, again, like, like most things, they, all, they often mask this underlying assumption about human nature. Right. Do we believe that people can change? Do we believe that people can be classified with the binary of good and bad. And if they have to check that box, they are then bad and irredeemable. I mean, yeah, that, that, that's essentially what that box is. 
are you good or are you bad in some some people's sense of the world and that's a real hard thing to bounce back from yeah so it, it it definitely seems like it's an issue that is you know just something we as a society are gonna have to like work through like we know we want you know ex-cons to have jobs but then it's also a risk to take on ex-cons for jobs and as the system right now is proving that it's there there's a lot more risk involved than there should be because you know i we could take the you know the the very the very generous take that oh well no these people are reformed they should be able to just go back to work you know they should be able you know they shouldn't even involve their criminal record but all types of things go into your resume and you know i'm pretty sure going to college is always going to be on my resume um no matter how long ago that was so part of those people's history is going to be whether they committed serious crimes or not and it's a tough thing that, you know, it's it's figuring out where the line is. You know, on some level, we believe in redemption. We believe that people are able to come back from their worst moments and that they're able to be functioning members of society. But then we also know that some don't. And it's how we grapple with that and how we expect people to other people to grapple with that issue, how to approach it, and what to do with that information. To continue along that line of thinking, because those are very difficult questions, my question is, what what do we do? What steps can we take to lower recidivism, to reduce mass incarceration, to help people become reintegrated into society what do we do yeah it it is a it is a very big very big subject um one one thing that i'm particularly fond of is the idea of treating prisoners as people and yes just kind of a direct sense um that you know a lot of our prison systems treat them like they're another and then because they're treated like they're another they act like they're another yeah um it i i watched a movie that was of uh i think it was a a warden of a swedish prison maximum security prison and he he had this great insight is that you know if we want these people to act well in society we have to treat them you know we have to present them with society yeah we can't we can't take them away put them somewhere that is nothing like the outside and that's what most american prisons are a society with rules and structures that does not resemble the outside world 
whatsoever. Yeah, I believe that insight is from Where to Invade Next, the documentary, because um, I recall that exact exchange. And well, it, there there was a whole just one off documentary about this guy. Oh, okay, or, or something. So it, it may be the same thing, but no, there there's like a whole one off movie in on Netflix about this prison and you know how it operates and then they come to america and they're like no that's bad um but no i think that that is so important there's this sentiment that when someone is incarcerated they don't deserve anything they're lucky to work for 11 cents an hour you can feed them shit you can stack them in because well they're criminals and they deserve it but at least the argument made in what where to invade next is that when someone's incarcerated, you've taken away their freedom. And that is the most important aspect of the punishment. Yeah, that should be punishment enough. And obviously there are differing circumstances of someone you know, even within a prison context, behaves violently, then then there are there can be additional steps taken. But by and large, I think that making the prison environment less restrictive, less of a total institution, would have to have positive implications for reintegration and recidivism. Exactly. Like, you know, some prisons, the way they're set up, you can't even go to the bathroom in private. Mm-hmm. No doors like, on stalls. How, yeah. how humiliating is that? You know, most people, people get upset if the gaps in stalls are a little bit too big or or the floor doesn't go or the the stall doesn't go all the way to the ground and there's people a gap on the for, bottom there people live for decades and never even go to the bathroom in front in front of their partners you know yeah. some people won't even go to the bathroom in public yes so, yeah they won't do it they're so freaked out by it and we take away that little that little bit of you know sense of who they are and make dignity yeah yeah it 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 takes a lot to you know i don't think i've ever gone to the bathroom in public like with people watching and it just being a normal thing that's going on it's it's hard to even imagine that or the fact that you know most prisoners, you know, they they they're allowed a very limited amount of private property um, when they're in prison, and having things as part of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the recourse if that property is stolen is often non-existent. You know, yeah, and, it's, it's and, a very <laughs> tribal way of, of, of life. Yeah. Or, or, you know, everything, 
and so much is set up so that people don't bring drugs into prison but you know the way most prisons get are set up i couldn't think of really any escape other than drugs yeah like there's no you know it it is you know it is punishment but it is just so much so that you know how are like i get i get overwhelmed when i have a long work day and i feel like i'm trapped there what if i was in prison the whole time i mean i want to feel trapped yeah (laughs) yeah i want to and you want to feel good sometimes you know a little bit at all you know there's a high likely that you know if you could if you have the ability to turn to drugs you'd do that Mm -hmm. because it's the only little thing that can make you feel good even just for a little bit if it's fleeting Mm -hmm. and the thing is that prison the, the conditions don't change whether you're there for a murder or a procedural violation. You know, you hear about people getting put away for, you know, uh, registering their kid in a different school district or, you know, some. Oh yeah. That's really a horrible crimes. Yeah. That's that. That's just, that's not justice. No, not, not by my reckoning. And, it's the exact same severity of penalization across the board. Well, you know, with various well, there, facilities. Yeah, but. There, I mean, there. I mean, within prisons, there are some variation of you know the the conditions and you know how much lockdown you have and how you know what little freedoms you get, you know, and the little variability in what you get to do with that. But the the base level of deprivation of freedom is very high. I'm actually right now finally getting around to watching Orange is the New Black. And I know it's a fictional program, obviously, but they really have done a lot of homework to try to accurately depict elements of the prison experience. Obviously, there's a lot that's dramatized. But if, if even a tenth of it is at all uh, faithful to the real prison experience, it's, it, it doesn't seem like something that I would want to defend if I was explaining it to my children or, yeah. or, or someone from another country. It's just the, the, the way that we treat people who yes may have made a mistake in their life and may deserve some form of punishment but ultimately have no real way to defend themselves and advocate for themselves it's i think it's something that reflects very poorly on us like so my mom she works at a prison (laughs) Um, she, she does like, you know, it, it, you know, it's office work, you know, she doesn't do anything directly with any of the prisoners, but 
she does interact with some of them because they do most of you know the you know the more menial work around the prison you know they they pick up the trash uh run the commissary you know all that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. and she was telling me you know she gave me this anecdote where you know she was just talking with i think she was talking with the person who runs the commissary which is like the top level job in the prison um and just they were just eating lunch and on a day-to-day basis they eat this thing that they describe as all-purpose meat patty Uh and some days they're like ah it's supposed to be chicken or ah it's supposed to be beef and I don't know if they're getting served the same thing, but it's enough to joke about that they're not getting served real food. Mm-hmm. It's this factory-made amalgamation of edible things that approximates a meat product. And, you know, I don't, you know, in some ways, I don't care what you did. Like, you need to be fed food. Yeah. And then some people are like, are we going to have our prisoners fed better than our children? And then I go, well, we Let's need to feed, feed our, our children, children better. better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, let, let, let's kick that up another notch. <laughs> yes, I believe prisoners should be fed better. And I think our children should be fed better at school. Big conversation. <laughs> um, I can believe both. So res- bringing down recidivism is a big goal. Now, I don't think we could, you know, I don't think there will ever be zero recidivism because there are some people with whatever issues that they have in their lives or their body chemistry or whatever that they're more likely to um, commit antisocial behavior. Yeah, even but, if we have the most compassionate criminal justice system, there will still be assholes. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, the Sweden you know, the Swedish prison system, which, you know, we talk about and we hold it up as a model still has like, you know, it's somewhere, I think it was somewhere around 20% recidivism, but that's a far cry from around 50% recidivism. Mm -hmm. And they have way fewer criminals than we do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So, or people, not even just criminals, people who have been charged with crimes. Um, so, you know, I just think that, that there needs to be reform. Yeah, yeah. I think that's this, kind this, of what this, this is, conversation has been leading to, broad yeah. criminal justice reform. And, you know, I, I, you know, reform is just, you know, sometimes it feels like a cheap way to knock, you know, talk about things. We need reform. But the the barometer for me is that I don't look at the system that we have and think that it's okay. I don't think this is a system that's effective. And I don't think it's doing what people really want it to do. Or if so, it's misguided. Um, I feel like we could have a much better society if we work towards making sure that when people leave prison, they are in a position to be able to function in society. 
Yeah. Um, or, you know, in the movie about the, the Swedish prison, they also talked about how they worked hard to make sure that the jobs prisoners were doing were actual jobs that existed out in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and not some sort of specialized prison work that whatever contract the prison got to have its prisoners do. Um, and it just, that can go a whole far, you know, go a long way. Just making sure, you know, hell, you know, we're talking about banning the box. What if we make it so that, you know, hopefully prisoners will over their time, they can be highly qualified in whatever job they're pursuing. Sure. Yeah. Because during that time they were able to, you know, they were able to do the job that they're applying for. Yeah. Um, that would, that would help massively in their employment prospects because, you know, even if you're, if if you don't have a criminal record, when you have your resume, having a gap between employment is a difficult thing to go, you know, to work around. Yeah, it is. Imagine being in jail and not working. (laughs) Or even not work, you know, not working in something that is even close to the field that you're working to be part of. Yeah, yeah, irrelevant experience. Yeah, I mean, it it's great that you you know emptied out trash cans, but how are you going to make widgets or just anything? It, it's we're we're very focused on some mythological idea that the punishment will be enough will scare them straight and they won't want to do that again when in fact we just harden people make them make them you know teach them to work in a society that is not of our own and then when we get into our own society they don't follow our rules mm-hmm. so and it's, I think that, it's a tough subject. I think that we've focused a lot on the outgoing experience of, of leaving prison and rightfully so. But I also think something needs to be said for changing the way that we filter people into the prison, prison system. There's so much to go on here, but I'll just say that I think we need to make sure that the people who are incarcerated are really just people who have committed serious offenses that would be dangers on our streets or would be um, people who are otherwise harming society in terms of white collar yeah, crime. Uh, doing, yeah, doing, fa- doing behaviors that if left unchecked would be harmful to others. Sure. And so I think that, um, you know, the 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 current war on drugs and drug criminalization is not sustainable in this country no and the obviously mandatory minimums and three strikes laws are contributing to this problem you know petty petty theft is if it's you know your arbitrarily just happens to be your third strike you will be put away for 
a massive amount of time, including up to life in some jurisdictions. Yeah. And I get it. Okay, I get the argument that if you know you have two strikes, you shouldn't commit a petty crime. That's obviously valid, and I'm not saying that someone with two strikes who commits a petty crime shouldn't receive any sort of punishment, but we have to ask ourselves about proportionality. Is, is it a proportionate response for someone who stole three candy bars to spend their life in jail? Yes, I know that they were dumb for not correcting their behavior in the construct of our current criminal justice system, but that doesn't mean that the underlying system is morally and intellectually defensible. Right. Yeah. So let's all just go reform things and uh, make society better. Yeah. One podcast at a time. Well, that does seem like that. That seems like a that seems like about where we'll end it. Yeah. Are we doing like a, an ending brief segment or, or are we cutting it? I don't know. We can. I mean, we could riff for a little bit. Want to riff on Big Mouth? That's my go to. Going through changers. I I really liked the bit of Coach Steve having a different job every episode, no matter how little <laughs> sense it made. Yeah, that was they go, a fun. They go to Florida and he works in Florida. Yeah, he's Teddy Roosevelt in that Duke Ellington storyline. Yep, I liked. I liked. Uh... We did this. We talked about this in the earlier times that aren't in the podcast, but I like the sections where they talked about rage and anger and like the idea that girls get mad, too. Um, I really I really like that because that that that's one part of being, uh, you know, going through changes is angst. Yeah. Lots of angst being mad at things and lots of people going through reasonable and unreasonable circumstances at the same time and not knowing how to deal with it. Yeah. Did you like uh, Andrew's accidental visit to the neo-Nazi rally? Oh yeah. That was, that was fun. Um, <laughs> I, I like how, it was interesting how quickly he came back from that yeah. <laughs> or, or, or called it quits. Yeah. He was immediately like, ah, this, this is, this is over the line. Even for me, it was full of anger. It, it, it may have been a little bit more interesting if he went on with it for a little bit longer, but. Yeah. I, I still, um, I like the decision to end it where, <laughs> where it was. Right. Yeah. The, the brief, Visit with the shame monster. Yeah, the shame wizard. <laughs> Only for a joke. I, I, thought, yeah. I, thought, I thought the shame wizard would come back in fuller force, but that's okay. They, they don't have to use every character every season. Yeah. I thought it was fun how Missy got a hormone monster. Yeah, a completely different hormone monster. Yeah, add, add a little, add a little more spice to things. Yeah, except I was disappointed because I always pride myself in correctly guessing the voice actors, and I guessed Sharon Horgan, and then it ended up being Tandy Newton. So, Team oh, Wizard visited me on that Evan. one. Evan, 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 Evan. But there was a great. What joke. are we gonna do? There was that great joke where. Um, 
Missy was talking about wanting to watch Game of Thrones, and then her hormone monster says, ah, I always preferred Westworld, because Tandy Newton's on Westworld. It's a good meta joke. Oh, yeah. That's a fun little joke. Yeah, so. there, there's the the part where they talk about Amazon Prime. Yeah, the best video. Amazon video. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I thought it um the episode where they made the lists, that was, I don't know, that that was an interesting exploration. All right. I know that I'm going to have literally zero support in what I say next, but uh-huh. we did it first. Yeah? Yeah, there's an episode where it's, it's not, not as extensive, but someone anonymously releases a list ranking all of the Glee Club members in order of hotness, and that causes a big yeah. uh, fervor within the group. But this, this I think, extended the premise more. Yeah. Or how they had an app where they ranked everybody. Yeah. And everybody <laughs> like could see everybody's lists. Yeah. Well, it, I, it, I, the, the, um, what was it? I feel like in this season, Jesse really seemed to come out more as more of a main, you know, more of a, the main character than in the past. Yeah. In general, I would say it became decentralized from Nick. So we had more Jesse storylines. We had more Missy storylines. We had more Jay storylines. Yeah. Independent of that Nick and Andrew click. And I thought it worked. I, I liked sort of getting a fuller, depiction of Bridgeton middle right it, it wasn't just so yeah it wasn't just focused solely i mean one of the kind of critiques of the first season is that it was you know pretty somewhat male-centric yeah but it, it's really coming you know showing all the other sides and the pressures that different groups of people have during that time period is a really I like it. Yeah. It's not also, just a bunch of penis jokes. It's penis jokes <laughs> with a purpose. Yeah. And small note, but did did it feel like they were trying really hard to like retcon in last names and middle names? Like Lola had never had a last name and then they called her Lola Scumpy like 18 times in 10 episodes, like really hammering that in. Nick's middle name is Arsenio. Like they really wanted to drive home like this is canon. These are their full names. (laughs) We are going to have full Wikipedia articles, damn it. (laughs) I'm sure there's like a Big Mouthpedia somewhere. Oh, yeah. A a fandom. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But yeah, no, nothing but love for Big Mouth. Oh yeah, has not has not yet experienced a significant dip in quality. Yeah, and I've, the Planned Parenthood episode is still a skip over. But... Yeah, that's the we that and then the the episode in season one where Andrew and Nick go to New York City. It's not quite a skip over episode because a they have that important realization about Jesse's mom having the affair with mm-hmm. Andrew Dina, and then that that weird guy who they go to hang out with um, who has the golf <laughs> noodle is really mm-hmm. funny, but the yeah. episode as a whole 
is not great. But that, yeah, that and the Planned Parenthood episode are the weakest. I really liked in season three where the uh, Jesse's mom story went. Yeah. That was, you know, that, you know, uh, Jesse's mom was unfulfilled and then she finds this vixen, you know, as described by Jesse. Yeah. <laughs> and um, essentially falls head over heels for her for getting everything because she can make her feel good. And then Cantardina breaks up with her and yeah, leaves her. Were... And then she's left feeling just like she did before. Yeah. I like how they're just like, oh, yeah, she wants to be single for Ronnie DeFranco River Cruise. And then that was it. That was the end of Cantardina. <laughs> Yeah, Cantardina just went away. Um, so yeah, I, I like how the show is now also exploring themes that have to deal with older people. Yeah, not just, yeah the, the menopause, not, which visiting Andrew's mom was really yeah. well-known. It was also weird because it seemed like the menopause, which was the mascot of Bridgeton middle <laughs> because I look back and it's seen, you know, they have like big witches on the walls or, you know, characters that look similar, mm -hmm. you know, as like their mascot or whatever. They played a lot looser with their own reality in this season. They yeah. had a lot more surrealistic elements that were more integral to the plot than just, heads exploding and then them being fine the next scene <laughs> right oh man heads exploding that was great there or, were some really uh, good fallbacks in this season too yeah man i thought the i was very ready to write off the final episode because of all the superhero stuff yeah until they made it all right that it was just backpack kids imagination yeah it was it was a metaphorical rendering of the social dynamics through caleb's comic book because i was really i was about to go really this is <laughs> this is what we're doing this is this is the movie or this is the tv show now they just have superpowers like i know we've yeah like you said before we're going a little more surreal but that's um th that's a big step yeah like going from just normal world and now, oh now we have superpowers well i mean they've got the the, the dog the, the pit bull featuring ludicrous can talk those raccoons yeah. are trained by judd to be waiters like yeah <laughs> there's certainly some elements that are more fantastical but you're to, to be to be absolutely fair, yes, absolute superpowers would be a huge departure. Yes, that it would be. It wouldn't just be some whimsical little thing. That would be changing to the entire universe. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I, I still through through all this. I I I the character that I most empathize with is Andrew. It just a guy having a tough time of it, dealing with some really primal urges and trying to be a good guy about it. 
Yeah. And having to deal with that and all those emotions and all those feelings just coming at him. And his dad is basically another shame wizard for him. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Oh, Andrew's dad. I'm surprised they didn't uh, do anything with uh, scallops. <laughs> no more scallops jokes. They, they might come back. This has been renewed for like four more seasons or something. Oh, I know. Yeah. I like. I really like the uh, the part in the intro where they're like, and for some reason Jay hasn't masturbated in like two weeks. <laughs> yeah, and he's all pent up. Yeah, I- I'm gonna rewatch it too. Big Mouth is a very rewatchable show. It's so fast. Yeah, and there's visual gags like the probably the the most underrated visual gag is always the like the message board in the establishing shots of the school. Oh, it's so fast. They don't sit on it at all. No, you, and they, cause they know that they are in a format where you can pause it. So they don't have to sit yeah. on it. Yeah. Yeah. Always trying to figure out what that is. Um, so yeah, big mouth season three, it's out now streaming now. We don't get a commission, but watch it anyway. Stream, streaming wherever you get Netflix. <laughs> um, so that that was myself, Joe Hicks, and Evan Kelly. Um, these were our discussions on, uh, what did we talk about? Yours was... Potentiality, reviews, and ban the box. Ban the box and a greater discussion of the purpose of prisons and rehabilitation in general. So we hope that we gave those topics a good faith discussion um, to discuss it on. I mean, maybe the merits, but you know what? What is really going on? We we just we want to find the truth. And we whatever that may be. In a way that is adequately, adequately informed. informed. <laughs> <laughs> dum, dum, dum. <laughs>